This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, God and Gold, Britain, America, and the Making of the Modern World, our guest today, Walter Russell Mead, contends that the key to the predominance of the two countries has been the individualistic ideology of the prevailing Anglo-American religion. This helped create a culture uniquely adapted to capitalism. As a result, the two nations were able to create the liberal democratic system whose economic and social influence continues to grow around the world. Mead, who writes frequently for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Esquire, is the Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Walter Russell Mead, welcome to Weekly Signals. Great. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Very good. Uh, are we reaching you in New York? Yes, you are. What's going on there today? Do you have a little bit of uh, cold weather? It's uh, it's nasty. This is the oh, time really? of year when you when basically all New Yorkers wish they were Californians. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, come on down. Are you no, you're in the heart of the city? I assume. Uh, we're up our offices uh, on the Upper East Side. Uh, well, I just know, having spent a little time uh, and a, a brief period of time in the winter in New York City, those concrete uh, those buildings really reflect the cold or really hold it in, don't they? It's tough, and you know, I've got uh, students, a lot of California students up at Bard, where I teach upstate, where it's even uh-huh. colder than New York City. <laughs> and around this time of year, these kids, they look so pathetic, especially the freshmen, and they say, you know, they're already saying, but this is terrible, we had no idea, and of course it's going to get a lot worse next month. Well, it's an education, isn't That's it? part of their education, isn't it? <laughs> so, so tell us, uh, God and Gold, what inspired you to write this book? What led you down the path where, where this book came together? Well, you know, it uh, it really was this sense that that if you look at at world history, um, uh, people often under underrate the the role that the English and the and the Americans have had. That that people talk about the rise of Europe and the fall of Europe or the rise and fall of the West. But you know, I, I look around the world, and what I see is you know, for better or for worse, and it's some of both. This global system of trade, power, finance, commerce, the British built it, the Dutch invented it, the British built it, and we're running it now. Mm-hmm. And this system was more pervasive and powerful than it was in 2000, than it was in 1900, and 1900, than it was in 1800, and on back to 1700. There's no fall yet. Uh-huh. Now, how would you describe this, this system? What would be the key elements of it? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, geopolitically, it's about sea power, uh, as Admiral Mahan described it, which is a combination of, you know, commerce and controlling the world's sea lanes, and we would now add information routes. You know, the British in the 19th century control the world's cable routes um, with a balance of power in major geopolitical theaters like Europe or Asia on the one hand, and then it's, it's, it's a kind of a mix of capitalism and the open society that generates enormous wealth and power. And the Anglo-Americans have been, you know, rather good at it. Does that um, does that include energy? When you say the the seas, is that 
part of the equation that you're talking about? Uh, well, it is now. I mean, it wasn't originally because originally both uh, the UK, you know, the UK was a great coal power, and the U.S. was a large oil exporter for for much of modern history. But definitely today, um, uh, in a sense, what the what the the idea is that the Anglo-Americans have been trying to prevent any one power from being able to interrupt the world's oil supply. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not about having American corporations own it all. It doesn't quite work that way, because, in fact, they haven't for a rather long time, since the 60s in many cases. Mm-hmm. But it is about sort of that Japan doesn't have to maintain an intercontinental uh, Navy and missile deployment system, and so on, to know that that you know every day on schedule that new oil tanker is going to pull up to Tokyo Harbor. Now, to the extent, because uh, I want to make you you make a distinction about so the English speaking world and and this predominance over these last few centuries is is there a is there a serious threat from is it let me back up the mechanics of this capitalism. And an open society, is that is that these things go hand in hand? They seem to. Okay, they seem to. Okay, then is is there a serious threat from, um, let's say, China as an example of coming in with a ostensibly capitalist system, but to this point, and not an open society? Do they present a, a a significant threat, or will they fall by the wayside because they're not an open society? Well, you know, and it was Yogi Berra who said that prediction is always dangerous, and especially when it involves the future. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you, I mean, China. what's happening in China has never happened before. The Industrial Revolution in China alone is bigger than the whole Industrial Revolution in Europe, and it's happening faster. Uh, so... Uh, you know, that somebody's going to be able to pull some kind of political science rabbit out of their hat and give you a neat diagram of where China will go, I I don't think that's realistic. I don't think the Chinese know where they'll be in 10 or 20 years, much less anybody else. Um, But I do note that over the, the last 300 years, a lot of different countries have looked at the economic dynamism of this Anglo American system and said, boy, we want to have that dynamism, but we don't want their, um, democracy or limited government or any of that stuff. So, you know, you think about Germany, Prussia in the in the 19th century under the Kaisers tried to have Anglo-American political dynamism but not have that nasty democracy. Um, the fascists, Mussolini and and Hitler absolutely, you know, stated rather openly that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. The communists said we can develop better than those open societies with their sloppy inefficiency and the you know the problems of capitalism, so it's not a new idea. People have been trying to kind of you know get the make this thing work without the democracy for a long time. So far, nobody's made it work, but you know the future is unknown. Well, is one of the reasons going to the speaking of of Italy and Germany during the fascist period. Was there imperial ambitions they're undoing, or was it the system itself was 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 destined to fail? Well, I think it's um, you know once the British it's interesting once the British established this system in the in the eighteenth century, nobody's been able to overturn it by force. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the strangest things about world history that nobody ever talks about is that since sixteen eighty eight. 
um, the, either the British or the Americans have been on the winning side, and often both of them together, on every major great power international conflict. That's not the the smaller wars, the Vietnams or the British in the in in Sudan, and I say nothing about Iraq, but this sort of grand international contest between the major powers that define the international agenda. Uh, the only one the British have lost since 1688 was the American Revolution, which we won. Mm-hmm. So this, so a lot of countries have sort of tried over that time, Spain, France, Germany, Japan, Russia, uh, to overturn this system, and nobody's managed to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Walter Russell Mead. The book is God and Gold, um, Britain, America, and the Making of the Modern World. Now, I think we we all agree that Britain had demonstrably had an empire. The sun never sets on the British Empire. Can the same be said of the United States? Is it the same? Is it, if it is in fact an empire, is it the same kind of an empire? Well, first of all, I'm I'm reminded whenever I hear that phrase, there was a, an Irishman who said the reason the sun never sets on the on the British Empire is that God wouldn't trust an Englishman in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, empire is a, is, is a loaded term. It, it, too. It, it is. Look, I think um, if you mean in the formal sense, I mean the, the Americans don't go. You know, the British like to paint the map pink. So India was pink, mm. Canada was pink, Australia was pink. <laughs> the Americans don't really want to want to change the color of the map. Um, so, India today is not an American colony by any stretch of the imagination. But India plays a, an important and growing role in this world system. So is that an empire? Is it something new? You know, the, 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 the NATO alliance is 60 years old. Do you want to say that, that Germany is a satellite, an imperial province of America? I mean, people, people say things like that, but I'm not sure that that's right. I, I think that that where these things depend on elected governments, uh, it's tougher. Now we're now they're you know, then you've got issues like the Saudi Arabia. Is that part of America of the of an American empire? I mean, you can argue it either way. It seems. To I, me. I guess. I guess if I were argue, I mean, I wouldn't argue sort of this sort of uh, you know militarily imposed sort of uh, the, the Commonwealth uh, as the British employed it. Where were were they stationed? I mean, they were in charge. They they took right. over countries and, and ran them and. I would look. I look at this as more of a series of economic oper- economic advantages that the United States in, in enjoys over economically weaker countries. And and in more modern terms, I think these these trade agreements, these trade pacts, have further solidified our dominance over countries that do not have the kind of infrastructures that the infrastructure that we do. So that in my in where I'm t- what I'm talking about is more of an economic empire. Right. Again, this is I mean, you know, it, it, that point of view I think was was very cogently and strongly argued in the 70s as the kind of you know dependency theory that the you know the metro the the sort of wealth and power of the center was was because of the you know the exploitation of the poverty and the marginalized periphery. Mm-hmm. But what's been happening in East Asia has been interesting because it's clear that that some countries are have been able to use that use this international system to leverage themselves to great power within it. Mm-hmm. So, to some degree, it seems to me that that the experience of China and India um, 
works against the idea that this is a system of privilege uh, in the sense that, that, that it doesn't offer countries real opportunities. Mm-hmm. And now that doesn't mean, you know, again, the system is a power system. I actually prefer power system to empire okay. because it's such a loaded term one right. way or the other. Right, right. Um, it's clearly a power system. It clearly works to an American advantage. Otherwise, we, we wouldn't do it. Um, but is that is the heart of the system finding ways to align other people's interests with ours? So that, for example, China thinks, well, why should we fight a war with the Americans? Why should we try to overturn their system? Because we're becoming quite wealthy and successful within it, mm-hmm. as do Germany and Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germans and Japanese have very high, highest living standards they've ever known. Are they victims of some kind of sort of imperial domination, or have they figured out that they're better off aligning themselves uh, with us? Mm-hmm. Okay. Where, where, where does the where, let's go to the title here, God and Gold? Where does that? Where did that come from? Well, I, I uh, thought of um, you know if you, if you wanted sort of a. T- a two words that that I think describe the sources of of American uh, power today would be um, capitalism and then a kind of a religious culture that has made American society well fitted you know sort of made us very um, uh, made capitalism a kind of a natural social system for us mm-hmm. and that's had great economic advantages mm-hmm. uh, Given that, are, are you concerned uh, where the religious system here has gone over the last, say, 20 years with the Christian right and the fact that our president was probably elected on account of that? Does that give you any concerns about about our power system? Well, you know, what I'd, one of the nice things about taking you know, what I call the long view of history is you can see, if you look at Anglo-American history going back 300 years or more, this you, you see this happening a lot, of sort of religious revivals uh, moving the political system toward, at least for a time, a more kind of explicitly religious rhetoric. But what you see over 300 years is that, you know, this sort of, this never quite gels into some kind of a serious theocratic, uh, uh, danger to the open society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I think it was Voltaire who said in about uh, 18, uh, 1740, when he was looking at England, he says, you know, if you have one religion in a country, you have civil war, uh, you have despotism. If you have two, you have civil war. If you have 30, they will all live together happily and in peace. Mm-hmm. That the religious diversity of the U.S., um, you know, like are we going to have a theocracy? Well, will it be a Catholic theocracy, or will it be a Baptist, or a Presbyterian, or a Mormon? They can never really quite agree. I think in in the context of our of this discussion, I would be at least as concerned. Not so, I wouldn't be as concerned about sort of the leadership in the United States, but the projection of our military power, and specifically into the Middle East, where we're perceived in very religious. In a religious framework, and and I just recently uh, finished reading an extend, extensive article about the about the religious influence within our own military, which concerns me. Apparently, we're we it's pervasive now, um, and so is this mm-hmm. is this something that you know f- 
putting aside domestic politics and where right, we're going right, in 30 years, enough. we are still we are involved in a region of the world that is very much theocratic and very much concerned about sort of a Western imperial power coming in, particularly with this veneer of, of religion right. on top of it. And this is where we're going to get into some real serious trouble. If, if don't you, I mean, do you agree with that? Uh, well, actually, one thing I, I'd say, you know, it's possible, but for most of the history of the modern world, of, of American history, our basic contacts with the Middle East were through missionaries. Um, you know, mi- American missionaries uh, basically founded a lot of the major universities in the Middle East, Roberts College in yeah. Turkey, AUC, American University in Beirut, American University in Cairo, all kinds of other colleges. And these were staffed by missionaries, and they were, you know, and Muslims as well as Christians in the Middle East sent their kids there. Um, and what's interesting is that when missionaries had a very, you know, were the sort of cutting edge of our presence in the Middle East, actually the U.S. had a much better image in the Middle East than it does today. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is that you can we have in the past managed very well to have a us uh that is seen as as a predominantly christian presence even and you know navigated some of the problems that that causes in fact if you look at what a lot of people in the islamic world are unhappy about today it's it's this is there's angry at hollywood as they are at american support for israel some mm-hmm. people are you know mm-hmm. the sort of corrupting secular culture that they see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I have often heard is, uh, in, in much of the world, is, boy, how much better we liked it when the Americans we knew here were predominantly sort of missionaries, medical workers, people like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the answer is there are pluses and minuses of everything. If our, if our military were to start considering themselves agents of a new crusade, uh, and American foreign policy you know, was seen as deliberately trying to impose Christian. What was it? Ann Coulter or somebody said something about, you know, we'll we'll conquer their countries, kill their leaders, and convert them to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Sounds like her, right? It, right. I don't know who it was, yeah. but it was some you know right wing pundit. I mean, if that were to become uh, you know the, the way people saw American foreign policy, we would we would have real trouble. But we've we've avoided it in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think uh, George Bush is a good representative for this kind of uh, Anglo-American power? Well, I would say he's, uh, you know, British and American history is long, and there have been a lot of presidents and a lot of prime ministers. They haven't all been uh, geniuses of the first rank. <laughs> That's polite. <laughs> and uh, they haven't all, uh, you know, they haven't all you know, had wise policies. I think, in a sense, what's what's amazing to me is I look over. You know, it's the capacity of the American and and before us the British system to survive bad leadership that I find so interesting. Mm-hmm. Almost through all of American history, everybody in the world has agreed about one thing about the Americans, which is that we're just terrible at foreign policy. We're not as subtle as the Europeans. We're some people would say we're too isolationists. We we are too bent on military conquest. We are too idealistic and naive. You know all of these lists. And in spite of that, for 225 years, the major trend in international relations has been for 
sort of greater American power and presence in the world. So I think it's precisely because our leaders are so often not particularly brilliant or great, and yet our power has continued to grow. That's one of the reasons I've been drawn to studying the system. Uh, yeah. We're speaking with Walter Russell Mead. The book is God and Gold. Did you have a question? I'm, j- I'm just pondering. I'm pondering what you were just talking about, and I'm trying to sort of fit some kind of a, a, a vision for uh, henceforth, where we're going from, from this point forward, because we're in a situation in the Middle East that I think by almost most accounts, certainly, has been um, failing, and it could somehow, some way, right itself. But we are now essentially, we've, in my mind, we have essentially have claimed the Middle East. Uh, we are the protectors of this oil supply and the Middle East and all of the problems that come along with that. And I don't see how this is going to end well for us. Well, I would say, you know, I mean, I think it's, a, it's certainly uh, something to think about. <laughs> I wouldn't say this is so new. I mean, it was the Carter Doctrine. You know, the U.S. would intervene militarily to protect the oil supply. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Carter, not really known as a greatly interventionist president. And it really, it's, it's the Suez Crisis, 1956, when the U.S. kind of asserted a primacy in the Middle East. Well, really, didn't, right after, right as World War II was ending, we essentially kicked the British out. We gave them a little piece of the action, but we've really been running right. the show since well, the that's, World War II. Well, 1956, where we, you know, where we drove the Brit- forced the British and the right. French to back down from Suez, that made it official. Yeah. And neither one of them has forgotten it or necessarily forgiven it. Um, but the, um, uh, so it's not, it's not new. Yeah. Now, you know, in some ways, the American nightmare had always been that uh, Arab nationalism in some form, whether it was secular or religious, would kind of unify all the Arab countries, including the Gulf oil. You know, those Gulf oil shakedoms and so on into one big state. Um, and that, you know, for that reason, our Historically, our big allies in the Middle East were Turkey, Iran, and Israel, the three major non-Arab countries in in that part of the world. And then after the, you know, ever since the fall of the Shah in 79, uh, we'd lost one of our main pillars, and Iran had turned into an enemy. So, you know, since 79, it's been a little bit more precarious. But I would say, you know, we're actually... Things are not pretty there, but but it seems to me that that particularly in the last year or so, it's begun to look less scary than it did. Okay. Well, well, on that happy and uplifting note, I, I think that's that's as good a place to end as as uh, as we can. Uh, I want to remind once again our listeners that we've been speaking with Walter Russell Mead. The book is God and Gold: Britain, America, and the Making of the Modern World. And I want to thank you very much for coming uh, and joining us here on Weekly Signals. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.